How's that? There we go. Everybody turns around to the sound guy. It's my fault. Sorry, Pedro. You're doing awesome. I have to turn the mute off. There that is. Yep. Um, well, guys, welcome to The Grove. Apart from uh, not knowing how to work a microphone, I'm Caleb, the, uh, one of the pastors here at The Grove. It's so good to be back here with you guys. I was gone last week down in Miami. I had the privilege of being able to go down and preach at one of our um, partner uh, churches, our gospel partners, a new church in Miami that started uh, just last year. Um, Eric Bancroft is the pastor there, invited me to come down, and I got to hang out with him uh, on Sunday, um, got to preach there at their church Sunday night, uh, and then got to go to their members meeting afterwards. So got to talk to a lot of their members, got to see firsthand uh, the work that you guys are partnering with and helping support uh, what God is doing down there. And had to have a number of incredible conversations with people who are just hungry as God's bringing people into community down here, uh, down there. People are hungry for the word. Uh, at their members meeting, they had 51 members, um, but they were uh, voting to add new members because they had 26 people at their new members class and were voting to bring 15 new members into their church. And so uh, God seems to be moving down there through his word, uh, and so much of that is because of the support of you guys. So I want to bring back just a great report of time down there with them and being able to see firsthand what God is doing. We are partners with them in the gospel. Um, and so it was great being down there, but boy, it is good being back um, here amongst the stars uh, back again, and uh, also these guys. Um, and uh, we are continuing uh, through our Advent sermon series, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Now, during these four weeks of Advent, um, we're using the Christmas hymn written by Charles Wesley. It's kind of our roadmap, some of the major things we're looking at every Week. And so uh, this Sunday, we look at this phrase that comes from the first stanza, Dear desire of every nation. Dear desire of every nation. We'll sing this song later in the service, but it comes from that first verse. The lyrics go like this, Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. Now, that whole stanza is clearly talking about Jesus. Jesus is Israel's strength and consolation. This is what Mello preached on last week, looking at uh, Simeon's prayer and prophecy. Well, that's Jesus. Well, Jesus is the hope of all the earth. Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. So therefore, Jesus must be the desire of every nation. Now, when, when I was looking at the sermon series and wanted to pull that phrase out, that was kind of how I initially read that, at least sung that my whole life. But digging further into that lyric, I found it's a bit more complicated than that. So bear with me on a journey through what exactly that phrase, dear desire of every nation, means. Now, to begin with, Charles Wesley actually grabbed that phrase from the Bible. It's a biblical phrase. Now, Wesley was an older dude. The only uh, English translation they had was the King James. In the King James Version, in Haggai 2, verse 7, Haggai, prophet, says this, speaking on God's behalf prophesies to the people of Israel and says, I will shake all the nations, speaking for God. I will shake all the nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. There's our King James right there. Saith the Lord of hosts. And so Haggai is prophesying the desire of all nations will come. 
Well, there's a problem, though. And the problem is, is that if you've got your Bible, if you flipped open to Haggai 2, verse 7, you'll find your translation, if it's not the King James, doesn't say the desire of all nations. See, so it's actually a, a, a misinterpretation from the King James. King James is a wonderful translation. Beautiful capturing of old English, helpful, useful, and edifying. But there are some translation mistakes, and here's an example of that. The Hebrew word here isn't actually the desire of all nations, which would, of course, be Jesus. But it's actually the desired things of all nations. The desire, uh, what is desired of all nations. Or if you have the CSB or the ESV, it translates it treasures of all nations. The NASB translates it the wealth of all the nations. Or the NIV, what is desired of all the nations. So we see it's not actually the desire of every nation, which would, which would be Jesus. Jesus is the longing desire of every nation. We'll actually look at that tonight at Carols in the Hills, how Jesus is the joy of every longing heart. But this text in Haggai is talking about something different, that the nations are bringing their wealth and their treasures, what is desired by others, to Israel to be able to build this house of glory. Now, the house of glory that Haggai is referencing here is the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, the temple, the place where God dwelt. And Haggai is prophesying here to these people, saying that the treasures and wealth of the nations will come and beautify this house, will help build this house. And so if that's what the text means in Haggai 2.7, I'm going to kind of depart from Wesley with the phrase, dear desire of every nation, then look and ask the question in Haggai 2.7, what are the treasures of the nations? And in what way is God going to use the wealth and treasures of the nation to build his house, to build his temple, to help beautify and glorify his tabernacle? Or really this question, even more simply as we begin, why is God so concerned about his house? Right? Is he worried that Chip and Joanna are going to come walk by and be like, oh, that's a bit of a fixer-upper there, God. You may need some help. He's like, no, we got to make sure that we beautify it. Why is God so concerned about his temple? Now, this is actually an important question. Uh, the temple, this theme of the temple, is one of the, one of the threads we see from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. This connection of God speaking to his people and really wanting to show them the significance of this temple or this tabernacle or this house. And so to, in order to understand why God is so concerned with it, I want us to trace that thread from Genesis through Revelation to see how the Bible talks about this and why we care about it, why we should care about it. What's the significance for us? And in what way will the wealth of the nations help build this temple, this tabernacle, and this house? Because maybe you're like me. I grew up in church, but uh, hearing about the temple or anything in the Old Testament was like, oh, that was interesting for like flannel graph stories in Sunday school, but like that didn't apply to me. I kind of disregarded two-thirds of the Bible. I felt like it didn't really apply to my life, so we just focus on the New Testament. Uh, but as we see in the Scriptures and what we'll see today, God is massively concerned with this idea of a temple. And so I want us to ask the question, why? Well, before we jump in, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, let me just say I'm so glad that you're at church. I hope there's a church where you feel comfortable, where you feel like you can... Uh, dive into or ask questions about your faith. 
Now, one of the things as we look at today, for me, one of the greatest apologetics and arguments for Christianity is actually this book. Seeing the way that it's connected, interconnected, to see how it's written, but yet still one unit. It is, in fact, one connected story, but 66 different books. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and written by over 40 different authors, most of whom didn't know one another because it was written over a span of 1,500 years. And yet, as we'll see today, there is this connectedness through all these diversity of authors to see that there is a hand behind all of them writing a larger story. And the story of redemption as it claims to be divine and supernatural in its origin and self-fulfilling in its prophecies. This book, to me, is one of the most uh, uh, intellectually um, persuasive arguments that I find in regards to faith. So sure, there are questions that we have. But again, if you're here and you're exploring faith, I hope you'll hear the diversity of this book. And as we go through it, look for the way in which God has orchestrated all of this together and how it's all pointing us to Jesus. So as we look at this thread of the temple, we've got to start in the beginning. In the beginning, God created this world. He created a garden. And in the middle of this garden, you've got Adam and Eve, you've got apples, you've got snakes, you have the fall. But before the fall, there's this moment where we see God dwelling with his people, dwelling perfectly with them. There's no separation. There's no sin. There's no damage to this world. There's no sickness. There's no death. Just a perfect shalom is the Hebrew word, a perfect peace in God's creation. And God dwelt among his people. He walked in the garden like a man with his friend. It was a relationship between God and Adam and Eve. But not long, Adam and Eve rebel against God, do the thing that he told them not to do. And then sin enters in the world and fractures that relationship. And Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and removed from God's presence. And the rest of the Bible, in one sense, is God then bringing his people back to himself to dwell again with his people. This theme of God dwelling with his people is one of the great themes of all Scripture. And so if that's the case then, and and humanity has been removed from God's presence, well, quickly, as we saw a couple weeks ago, God then gives the people, his people, the people of Israel, the book of Leviticus and the sacrificial system to be able to deal with their sin to bring an atonement and reconcile their relationship so God then could again dwell amongst them. Now, it's different than the garden. He first gives them a tabernacle, right? This kind of set up, tear down process of this tent where God could dwell amongst them, right? We've been a church now for a number of years, and we've been in an elementary school, right? There's a bit of us that understands Israel and the tabernacle process. They bring the trailer every day out in the wilderness, unloading it, getting the pipe and drape up. Um, They really probably had some pipe and drape in the tabernacle. There's a bit that we can uh, understand there with them. And as they set this tabernacle up, in the very middle was this holy of holies, this room where God's manifest presence dwelt among his people because their sin had been dealt with through the death of another, through the sacrificial system. Not long that tabernacle then turned into a temple as David's son Solomon then builds this beautiful temple in Jerusalem. And this was it. This was the the apex of the Jewish faith, was the temple. Because there in the temple, the temple signified this. It signified that God was there dwelling in and amongst his people, just like he did in the garden. God's presence was there. 
God dwelt among his people there in the Holy of Holies, the place which no one could enter into except the high priest once a year to make an atonement for their sin. But God's presence dwelt there with their people. This temple, Solomon's temple, was beautiful. It was ornate. You can read the specific instructions that God gives them. Why is God so concerned about what kind of trim people put in this temple? Well, because this was going to be a picture of God dwelling with his people. And we see that there's so many callbacks to the garden itself. There's images of trees there in the cedar that's lined inside. There's gold and there's onyx, just like there's mentioned in Genesis 2. As you walk into the temple, part of what God is wanting people to do as they walked into Solomon's temple was to call back to their mind that they were walking back into a quasi-garden as God was dwelling again amongst his people. And it was beautiful. It was ornate. But it didn't last. You see, people in Israel began to walk away from God. Didn't listen to what it is he said. They were impure. And God began to send prophets warning them, hey, turn back to me. There's a number of the major and minor prophets that we see. One in particular, Isaiah, was here towards the end of Israel's reign and saying, if you don't turn back, you're going to go into exile. It's going to turn out poorly for you. And sure enough, the, the kingdom of Israel splits into ten tribes in the north and two in the south. And the ten in the north go into exile. And then soon the two in the south, Judah, go into exile by Babylon as well. And Isaiah was warning them that this is exactly what would happen before they went into exile. But in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah ends with hope. He's saying, if you do not turn back, you will go into exile. But there is still hope in Isaiah 60 as he tells them what God is going to do, even if they don't listen. In Isaiah 60, Isaiah is telling them that the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear to you. He says, nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. So you're about to go into exile, but there is going to be a day when the Lord will shine over you. His glory will appear and nations will actually then come to your light. Kings will come to your shining darkness. And in verse 5 of Isaiah 60, it says that then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. So Isaiah's picking up on this theme that Haggai will get to in just a moment, that, hey, you're about to be disobedient to a point that you will go into exile, but God hasn't forgotten you. He will come again and his light will dwell amongst you. And when he does that, the nations will come and they will bring their, their wealth to you, And he goes through and lists all these different countries and what it is that they will bring. And as they bring them, here's the point of what that, the wealth of those nations will do. In Isaiah 60, verse 7, God says that I will then glorify my beautiful house. God is saying he will take the wealth of the nations and build this new and better temple. This glorious temple, this beautiful temple, even more than Solomon's temple. And he continues on with more countries and more things that will come. And he tells them, this is then what will happen within your city in verse 11. He says, your city gates will always be open and they will never be shut day or night. Now, that again may not mean much to us because we're not in an ancient city, but walls and gates were paramount to the protection and safety of a city. Whenever night came, those gates were closed, keeping robbers, thieves, protecting themselves from armies, as long as those gates were closed, 
it meant that there was safety on the inside, but it also, by implication, meant that there was danger on the outside. And here Isaiah is saying that when that day comes and God's light dwells among you, your gates will always be open. They'll never be shut. And the wealth of the nations will be brought to you and their kings will be leading in the procession. The glory of Lebanon will come to you. It's pine and elm and cypress together. Why? To beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will glorify my dwelling place. You hear God's desire to bring the wealth of the nations in to build this beautiful and glorious temple. And this is on the heels of Isaiah prophesying the exile that will come. He's saying all this will happen after the exile. He continues on talking about the different things the nations will bring. And later he says that violence then in this city will never be heard again in your land. Devastation and destruction will be gone from your borders. And you will call your walls salvation and your city gates praise. The sun will no longer be your light by day. And the brightness of the moon will not shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your splendor. Your sun will no longer set, and your moon will not fade. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your sorrow will be over. Isaiah gives this prophecy, saying on the heels of exile, God will come back. When he comes back and brings his light, then the wealth of the nations will come. This city in Jerusalem will get rebuilt. There will be this new temple that will be built from the wealth of the nations. And your gates will never close. There's going to be no more violence. And all of your days of sorrow will be gone. Isaiah is giving this prophecy. But then not long after this prophecy, guess what happens? Israel goes into exile. Assyria and Babylon show up on the scene, destroy the city of Jerusalem, and completely lay Solomon's temple to waste. Take them to captivity, do awful things. The ten tribes of the north are lost, and the two of the south go on to Babylon. But in the time when they were in Babylonian captivity, eventually, after Babylon uh, invaded Israel in 587 BC, 70 years later, Babylon falls to the Persian Empire. And this new king in Persia, this guy named Cyrus, comes to these Israelites, these Jewish people, and says, Hey guys, listen, I know that Babylon took you into captivity. But I'm going to let you go back. God's given me this vision. He's spoken to me. Your God has spoken to me. I'm going to let you go back to Jerusalem. And if you want to, you can rebuild your city, rebuild your temple. Now, place yourself in the shoes of the Israelites who hear that from Cyrus. There's been hope that maybe springs. Have you seen decades of despair and exile, murder and sorrow and suffering and pain? Now, maybe this is the prophecy that Isaiah 60 was talking about. We can go back. We can get back to the city because the temple, which signified God's presence dwelling amongst us, had been destroyed. We were removed from it. So in essence, by implication, we were removed from God's presence. But now we can go back and rebuild it. And so in 520 BC, any of the exiled Israelites that wanted to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city could do just that. And most importantly... They could rebuild the temple. But as the people began to rebuild the temple, it wasn't near as good as it was back in Solomon's day. Right? Solomon had all this money. He had all this power. And we're just kind of scraggly exiles coming back, doing the best we can. But they're looking at what they're doing, kind of scratching their heads and going, ah, oh, this is kind of embarrassing. 
This is nothing like what Solomon's was. And there were maybe even some elders there that remembered what Solomon's temple looked like. And looking at this little shack that they're putting together and going, uh, maybe we should just try again. That's where the prophecy of Haggai enters in. The people in the midst of discouragement, worried that they weren't able to rebuild God's temple like they had seen before, they then get this promise in Haggai 2. For the Lord of armies says this, verse 6, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. So the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And the final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. God gives this promise through Haggai to these people who are discouraged. And God's saying, listen, I'm going to build this house. And I'm going to do it through the wealth of the nations. And whenever I build this house through the treasures and the wealth and what is desired of the nations, it will be far more glorious then than it was at first. All of your discouragement will fade away because I, the Lord of armies. You hear how many times that name was used in that passage? The Lord of army, the, the Lord of hosts will accomplish this and he will provide peace. And it was meant to be able to give the people this encouragement. And so again, if you hear that, probably the, the thing you think is, okay, well, great, we're going to get gold and cedar and all this stuff to be able to then build an even more ornate temple than could ever be imagined. We fast forward a number of years. Rome now takes over Israel. Herod comes in as the king of Judea. And Herod is a kind of a, an act of political uh, privilege and, and uh, manipulation goes to build this temple up even more beautiful so he can try to gain some kind of relationship with the people in Israel. So Herod puts all this money into then expanding the second temple, making it far better than they had done. And yeah, it looked great, but it was still nothing like what Solomon had done. And it wasn't according to the specifications of what God had said. So maybe there were people then that were saying, oh, this is the fulfillment of Haggai 2. The wealth of the nations, Rome is coming and rebuilding this temple. It was built in 10 BC. This was the temple that Jesus would have been around and in during his gospels. But here's the problem. That temple was later destroyed 80 years later in AD 70 by Rome itself, who had helped build it. Jewish people were then dispersed around the world, exiled from Israel and Jerusalem yet again, without a home, without a temple, without much hope to hold on to. Now, if you are Jewish, or if you were raised Jewish, know people who are Jewish, you can feel the connection that they have to the temple, the desire to see the temple rebuilt. It's hard for us sometimes in America, maybe we don't know people who are Jewish, perhaps you haven't been to Jerusalem. It's hard for us to imagine just how important that temple is. Again, why is it so important? Well, because of what it signifies. It signifies God dwelling with and amongst his people. Whenever that temple is destroyed and the people are removed from Jerusalem, then that breaks the very relationship that the people have with their God. Sure, they are still God's chosen people, but they do not now live with their God amongst them. This is why for centuries, 
as Jewish families would celebrate the Passover meal, they would end the Passover meal with this prayer every year, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. They were without their home, but they, as they closed the Passover meal, remembering God's faithfulness, they closed with the hope and expectation that next year they could celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. Well, in the 19th century or 20th century, whatever it is, I don't know which one is which, the 1900s, whichever century that is, it's confusing, but that one, the 1900s. Israel goes back and then now has their land again, and it has access to Jerusalem. But yet still, the temple is not rebuilt. There, the temple mount that the temple stood on actually now has a mosque on top of it. Jews aren't allowed up onto the temple mount. And the closest that they can get is the, out, the outer wall. And in particular, on the western part of that wall, they believe that that's the closest that they can get to where the Holy of Holies used to be. And so that is the place that the people who are Jewish, that they go, okay, this temple is destroyed, but this is the, the closest that we can get to God's presence today. And if you go into Jerusalem and you there go see in that wall, you'll see hundreds of Jewish men and women crying, screaming, praying, placing prayers within the cracks of that wall. That's why it's sometimes known as the wailing wall. Because it, it creates this longing for God to be back with his people. That things are broken and it's not restored. So now, even though they are in Jerusalem, now when they end the Passover meal, they now, many people, end it this way. To pray that next year in Jerusalem, the rebuilt. Yes, we have access to the city, but it's not rebuilt. And so we pray and we long for God to rebuild his temple, to dwell again amongst his people, and for us to live in a rebuilt Jerusalem, fulfilling the promises of Isaiah 60 and Haggai 2. That's what is being longed for, for the temple of God to be restored and for God to dwell again amongst his people. And until then, they are longing and they are waiting and they are wailing as they mourn the separation from God. But as we, Leah and I, were able to go to Jerusalem last year, we got to go to the Western Wall. It's one of the most profound moments of my life, not in this kind of mystical, spiritual way, but just kind of being at ground zero for so much of this. But it was also one of the heaviest moments of my life. As I stood there and saw hundreds of people mourning the loss of God's presence and longing for God's temple to be rebuilt and for God to dwell again amongst his people. This longing for God to be back there with them. I felt so heavy because all the tears and all of the longing, all of the mourning, and they missed it. The temple did come, but it wasn't a grand building built on a temple mount. It was a small child held in a manger. You see, in John's gospel, John writes this in chapter 1. He says that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is literally the Greek word for tabernacle or temple. That God came and tabernacled among us again. And how he did it through the person of Jesus Christ. God made flesh, truly God and truly man. God tabernacled again amongst his people, not in a building, but in a baby. And that's why Jesus told people in John 2, hey, the temple will be destroyed, but if it is, I'll rebuild it in three days. People listening are like, uh, bro, Jesus, you, you serious? It took us 46 years to build this. 
with all the resources of the Roman government, and you, a carpenter from Nazareth, are just going to rebuild it in three days? Have fun with that. But Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his resurrection, that he would die, and three days later, the temple would be rebuilt in the sense that he would rise again, and now in the truest form, the very best of what the temple represents, God now fully and completely dwells in and amongst his people. Jesus was saying, the point of the temple isn't a building. It was all pointing to me, and you missed it. I am God dwelling with you. I am God with us. That is why it's so significant that his name is Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling amongst his people. And it was so sad standing there at the Western Wall, people longing for that temple, and they had missed him 2,000 years ago. The temple has already been rebuilt, and a better Jerusalem is still coming. And so that gets us then to the verse that we've had that we haven't even mentioned yet in Revelation 21. You've got your Bibles, you can flip there. Also in the, uh, um, in the bulletins, you can just open them up there. I don't want to spend, we can't unpack this completely, but there's a handful of things that I want to highlight. Revelation 21, this is the second to last chapter of the Bible. The Apostle John has this vision of what eternity will look like, what heaven will be like. And in it, Revelation 21 Verse 9 says this, Then one of the seven angels, who had held the seven bowls, filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Here's what the angel told John. Hey, John, come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. I want to pause right there. Because notice, there's something interesting there. John, the angel tells John, hey, come here, and I'm going to show you the bride. I'm going to show you the wife of the lamb. Now, who is that? Well, the lamb is Jesus. We see that throughout the New Testament. So the lamb is Jesus. Well, who is Jesus' bride? Well, Ephesians 5 references Jesus' bride as the church. All those who are saved. We see this elsewhere in Revelation, particularly in Revelation 19 at the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is whenever Jesus, the bridegroom, and his bride, his people, the church, are then united and married. So this is John hearing from the angel, hey, come, I will show you the bride. I'll show you the wife of the Lamb. Let me show you then the church. Let me show you God's redeemed people. But then what does John see? He doesn't see a church. He doesn't see a gathering of people. He is carried away and sees the holy city, Jerusalem. So the angel says, let me show you the bride and then shows him a city. And so part of us should scratch our heads and go, okay, well, uh, angel of the Lord, one of the seven angels, which is it? Is the bride Jerusalem or is the bride the church? Which one is it? Well, I would say that it's not an either or question, but a both and. As we see in Revelation that God's people, his redeemed, the ones that he purchased with his blood, the church, is also referred to here as this new Jerusalem, this holy city. The people are the church. The city is the bride. The city is the church. The city is the people. Now, this isn't just some ancient prophecy. We do this today, right? If I were to tell you, hey, New Orleans knows good dancing, good music, and great food. 
we associate people with places. I tell you that New York is a place that never sleeps. Or I tell you Portland is just weird. Right? We, we associate people with places, even today. And it's no different here in Revelation. Right? God's people and God's city are one and the same. That's why the prodigal son, when he returned, he said, I've sinned against heaven. Well, he was saying, I've sinned against God, but it was okay for him to say he sinned against heaven because it was the place and the people were one and the same. And so here we see the city is the bride. The city is the church. And so if that is the case, then if God is building this city and he's going to use the wealth of the nations to bring it, but the city itself is people, then what's the most valuable thing that can be brought from the nations to build this city? It's not materials. It's not gold. It's not oil from the Middle East. It's not the dollar bill or an Apple product from America. It's not anything that the treasures of the world material can bring. But if, in fact, the city is comprised of people, then the most valuable person or the most valuable product or material within it is the people itself. And God is building this city from the people in the world. And he's bringing them these valuable people. The treasures of the nations are people stamped with his image that he has saved, that he has died for, that he has redeemed. And he is collecting and building then this city comprised not of limestones, but of living stones. And these people will be from every tribe, every tongue, and every nations. And we see the treasures of the nations are the people of the nations. That is who will come and be used to build this new Jerusalem. So throughout the Bible, as God was prophesying, building this house, building this temple, and using the wealth of the nations, God seizes the fulfillment here in Revelation 21. He says, the treasures, what is most desired of the nations, are the people themselves. That's what I will use to build this city. He continues then in verse 12. I won't go into all the details. There's lots of gates. There's lots of precious jewels there's pearls involved in there. But I want to point out one interesting fact in verse 16. In verse 16, the angel says this, as John notes it, that the city then, this new city, is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. And he measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Now, geometry pop quiz. Okay, if you're in geometry, here's a pop quiz for you. What figure has equal length, width, and height? A cube. Well done, geometry student. A cube. The exact same height, length, and width. And John is saying he sees this city and it's this perfect cube coming down from heaven. So Bible trivia now, where is the only other place in the Bible that a cube is referenced? God gave the instructions, the very detailed instructions to build the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. He gave the dimensions for the Holy of Holies in the temple and in the tabernacle. This place where his manifest presence would dwell, but where his people couldn't enter except the high priest once a year. Any guess what shape that room, that Holy of Holies is? It's a perfect cube. What John is seeing here in Revelation 21 is this new city descends is that this entire city, all of the new heavens and new earth, is the holy of holies. It is the very place where God's presence dwells. And the people aren't separated by a veil anymore. They are there with him, just like they were in the garden. 
God is not only there amongst his people, but friends, on that day, it says we will see him face to face. That's what Revelation 22 says. There will be no separation from sin. There will be no separation of brokenness or anything else. We will dwell with him and he will dwell with us. The entire place will be the most holy place as God dwells in and amongst his people. And so then we go down to verse 22 and see what should be scandalous to the Israelite reader. So as we hear about this new city, we hear about this new Jerusalem, and it's going to be incredible. You can only imagine, well, what is the temple going to be like? If it was great in Solomon's day, I've read Isaiah 60. I've read Haggai 2. What is the temple in this new Jerusalem going to be like? I can't wait to see. I've read about onyx and gold and amethyst and chrysoprase, whatever that is. It's all going to be comprising this city. So what's the temple going to be? Well, John in verse 22 says this. I did not see a temple in it. There's no temple in this city. What a letdown. This is the very center of our relationship with God, and there's not going to be a temple? How will we be able to commune with him? How will we reconcile with him? How can we then have God dwell amongst us? John says he didn't see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. John knew that Jesus was the truest expression of that fulfillment. That he was God with us. And for eternity, that will be our reality. There is no more need for a temple. We don't need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because the temple was rebuilt whenever Jesus walked out of his grave. And for all of eternity, that is the reality that we will then live with, not needing a temple because Jesus Christ is the temple itself, reconciling us back into a holy God dealing with our sin once and for all, making an atonement for our sin and reconciling back up, us back to our Father so that we can then dwell with him for eternity, not having to hide with fig leaves, but we can then walk with him like a friend in the cool of the garden. And I love the images in Revelation 21 and 22 have so many garden images in them. You get to Revelation 22 and you read about trees and rivers the tree of life is mentioned again in Revelation 22 back in this city. And what we see is this garden city that descends where God's people will dwell forever, taking us all the way back to Genesis 3. And God bringing us back into that shalom, that peace. Well, how bright is the sun going to be? What kind of sun? What, do we need polarized sunglasses in this city? John in verse 23 says, This city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. And they will bring their glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. John says we don't need the light because Jesus' light will shine from him. Like on the Mount of Transfiguration, won't need the sun, won't need the moon, but Jesus, the very light of the world, will be our light. And it's never going to be day. The gates will always be open. You hear all the language of Isaiah 60. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy still to come. There is not only a need then to be saved because there will always be saved, but there is no danger anymore. There is no violence. There is nothing now that is broken. 
All of death has been wiped away. Every tear has been removed. And there is only then joy and hope and peace and worship for all of eternity. That is what is coming for those who are in Christ. And the glory of this new temple city isn't in the gold or the cedar or foundational limestones, but in the living stones that comprise this this temple city. As the people from all the nations come and they make up this church, this global church from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And this church is the city. And the treasures of the nations is not any material, but the men and women that will be inhabitants in that new Jerusalem from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. The Lord will shake the nations, and the nations will gather around the Lamb. Friends, this has always been God's global mission from the very beginning. God has always had his heart set on all the world to bring bring people from every nation to himself and save them so that he will dwell with them for eternity. No temple, no sun, no gates, only light, only glory, only peace, only a holy God dwelling once again perfectly with his redeemed people from every nation. So that's the story of God's redemption. And here's the implication for us. That if God is after the nations to build this new city, then friends, we should be as well. If God has a heart for the nations, then so should we. I think this is why Jesus, his last instructions to his disciples, Matthew 28, what's known as the Great Commission, he gathered his disciples and said, hey, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm going to use all that authority to tell you to do one thing. Go, make disciples of all nations. Jesus sends his disciples on a global mission because he came on a global mission. And the implication then for us in our church is that then we should continue to be committed to funding and partnering and prioritizing worldwide missions here at this church. It's why we give so much of our budget away to it because we see this is what God is doing. And so we don't give money to missions just because it's the churchy thing to do. We, we do it because we want to align our priorities to match God's priorities. See, we don't want to do things and just pray that God will bless them. We want to open up his word and see what God has already blessed and then go do those things. And you know what he's doing throughout the Bible? Creating a people for himself in every tribe, tongue, and nation. So God, we want to get in on that. This has implications not just for our church, but maybe even for you. Perhaps there's a sense that you have that God is calling you more directly into this mission. If you have a sense that God's calling you to uproot your life and give him a blank check to say, God, wherever you take me, I'll go to the ends of the earth. I want to be a part of what you're doing. And perhaps you feel God calling you to go and excavate these living stones and people groups around the world. And if that's you, if you feel any sense of a desire into that mission, come grab me after the service, after church today. We're working with our missions teams to try to develop a a, um, a program here to be able to raise up people who have that desire within our church. People to help partner with you to help fan that into flame and be able to send people out around the world. We want to see that happen to help make Revelation 21 a reality, that the nations will walk by the light of Jesus. And then even more specifically, I want to bring all this down then to a couple families in our church. To Rich and Trisha Dilworth and Rod and Lori Craybill, who are going to be praying for both over the next few weeks as they get ready to uproot and move back over to North Africa to be able to do this exact thing, 
We'll be praying for the Dilworths later in this service to hear what God's doing through them and pray for them. In the first service in January, do the same with the Craybills. And here's what I'd want to say to you, Rich, Tricia, Rod, Lori. One of the things that we see here in the scriptures, especially in Haggai 2, listen to the language that God says. I will shake all the nations. So the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. I love how freely God uses the words will and shall. It will happen. According to his divine power and his sovereignty, his purposes will be accomplished. The glory of that eternal city will be filled with the glory of the nations. So when you go back to labor and work in North Africa, you don't labor in vain because you aren't dependent on your ingenuity or your creativity or any of your own abilities. Your job isn't to make the plant grow, but to make sure the seed gets planted. And then you rest in the confidence that out of the good soil, the seed that is planted will grow. So inevitably, as you guys go back, or for any of us in gospel ministry, as we share the gospel, there is a tendency towards discouragement. Is this thing taking root? Is this stuff working? Is we seeing it be effective? We can trend towards discouragement. And if that's you, I want you to remember what God has called you to and remember what God told Paul in Corinth as he was on a missionary journey in Acts 18. He was in Corinth and seeing a lot of issues within the church. Stuff wasn't taking root. And God shows up to Paul in a vision and says this, Paul, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God shows up to Paul and says, Paul, I know you're discouraged, man, but keep going. There are people in the city who are mine, and they need to hear my message, and I will save them. God had already claimed them. They needed to hear the gospel for that gospel, then plant in good soil. And so what's then the response for Paul? Does Paul hear that and go, okay, God, they're already your people, then I'm not going to do anything. No, that reality of God's sovereignty motivates and pushes him to boldness and perseverance as he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It pushed him into perseverance and confidence. And so if you are in a season of discouragement, Rod, Lori, Rich, and Trish, you guys go back, remember that God will shake the nations and the treasures of the nations will come. The treasures of Corinth came and are used to build that city. And the treasures of the nations will come, and every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be gathered in that city, worshiping Jesus Christ. This Christmas season, I pray that God would help us see that Christmas truly is a missionary holiday. Jesus, in that, mission, in that manger, was the very first Christian missionary. He left the comforts of his home to move into a foreign land to be able to bring the good news of his salvation to a people that would be lost otherwise. And just as Jesus was sent by the Father, now Jesus sends us to go into the nations with that same gospel. As people in Israel would pray next year in Jerusalem, the rebuilt, longing that maybe the next Passover we would then celebrate it in a rebuilt Jerusalem. Friends, honestly, that's a helpful prayer for us to end the Advent season. As we look forward and pray that this time next year, We'll be doing this in a rebuilt Jerusalem. But not one of stones and a new temple in a city, but the rebuilt Jerusalem of Revelation 21 and 22 that's built with the treasures of the nations and every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Let's pray. God,
we are so grateful for your heart for the nations because we wouldn't be here without it. God, as we gathered in this room as Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish, God, the, the command of Matthew 28 is why we are gathered here today and have the hope in Revelation 21 and 22. So God, set in us a desire and a hope for the nations that you have. God, make us a missionary church, a church that cares for the nations, that's either going or sending, that's either doing or praying. God, that you would always lift our eyes to see what you're doing around the world, in Miami, in Italy, in the Caribbean, in Africa. God, as we're partnering with others with your gospel. God, we're grateful for the work that you're doing and pray that you continue to do more and more here in this city, in the state of Florida, and all the ends of the earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.